few years ago, I was lucky enough to go to an amazing ceramic show full of the best of London's young artists. And at that show, I picked up my first ever original artwork. I've treasured these ceramics for years, and every day when I look at them, it takes me back to how I felt buying my first ever piece of art. Well, if you too want to get on that collecting ladder and have a piece of work that will fuel a lifetime of curiosity, then look no further than the Affordable Art Fair. And guess what? You're in luck because there's one just around the corner, and it's their 20th anniversary. Head down to Battersea Park from the 17th to the 20th of October, and you can check out over 100 galleries and thousands of original artworks, with prices starting from just £50. For more details and to book tickets, visit affordableartfair.com, and for half price tickets, use the code GREAT at checkout, valid Thursday through Sunday. Huge thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. My guest this week is the spectacular artist and hugely influential stage designer, Ez Devlin, who, for the last two decades, has revolutionised the stage and our perceptions of art with her large-scale performative sculptures. Fusing music, language and light in her otherworldly environments, Ez has worked across a myriad of genres, ranging from opera and Shakespearean theatre to rap. Designing stage sculptures for the likes of Beyonce, Adele and Kanye West, big enough to fill 80,000 seater arenas, Ez also designs for the Donmar Warehouse to the National Theatre for audiences sometimes as small as 80. Growing up in Rye and East Sussex, Ez studied English literature at Bristol University before enrolling at the Central St Martins for a foundation year, which led to her attending the highly prestigious Motley Theatre Design course. She began her career in indie theatres such as the Octagon and Bolton and the Bush Theatre in London, working on every aspect of making and designing the sets, and has since created some of the most memorable stage environments, including Hamlet at the Barbican and the closing ceremony for the 2012 Olympics. Ez continues to develop her practice as an artist, with her more experimental AI-generated collective poetry, and next year she will represent Britain at the Expo 2020 Dubai with a very ambitious and architectural pavilion. Welcome, Ez. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, Katie. Good. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. So your work has continued to fascinate me. And I've been so lucky to witness it in so many different capacities and spaces, some of which include your smaller singing Christmas tree at the V&A, the mirror maze at Copeland Park, Hamlet at the Barbican, the projection maps, and more recently, the stage for the Lehman Trilogy at the Piccadilly Theatre, which I have to say, just completely blew me away. Oh, I'm so glad you saw it. No, it was fantastic. So how do you want your viewer to feel when they're at one of your artworks? Well, um, I want them to feel. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's step one. Um, really, in each piece, my endeavor is to tell a story. And often that is uh, a very collective endeavor with an awful lot of people. Uh, in the case of the Lehman trilogy, you know, one is working with you know, a piece that was written by Stefano, um, an Italian playwright, and then translated and adapted by Ben Power with the help of the director, Sam Mendes. So one already has an awful lot of thought and voice and intention before I arrive. Um, and then it's a case of how, from words, um, can we modulate into chemistry uh, in the audience's brains? How can they actually feel, in that case, the shape of Western capitalism? How can you feel it? How can you not just be told it and understand it and have it explained to you? How can you actually somehow breathe it or um, swim in it? You know, how can you actually be surrounded by a story? And that's, I'd say that's true of pretty much anything. And how do you feel when you're in an arena of 80,000 screaming fans adoring the person that you've been working with for so long? The best way for me to describe it is like a congregation. Um, and some people might find that terminology too narrow, but actually um, it's a gathering of people who already know the words, um, know the music and have come to sing it as a group. And it's something I think that we do less and less now. Um, when I was a kid, we sang every morning at school. We sang in assembly. Um, and I remember physically how that made me feel and the endorphins that were released by me singing with a group of people, whether I liked the hymn or not, was immaterial. It was chemically what was happening in my brain. And, and I now learn, having done a little bit of digging away at it, that it is endorphins being released as they are after you go to the gym. So that's what's happening at one level a whole load of endorphins being released by you know, 100,000 people singing together. Um, and at another, you know, you're accessing the collective memory of 100,000 people because they all ascribe these particular words uh, and music to parts of their life. You know, this song was sung at their wedding or they turned to this song in their moment of depression or they turned to this song when they needed to be encouraged or invigorated. And all of these things stream through this group and it's an extraordinary feeling to be standing in the middle of that stadium when that's going on. So you mentioned earlier when you were a child in assembly that feeling of together. When you were young obviously your work encompasses so much literature, it encompasses music which I know that you're an avid violinist when you were younger um, as was I actually. I also played in a symphony orchestra quite similarly. It's such a good training for absolutely <laughs> everything. It is because it just completely immerses you and I think having that as a young person and creating that music together is such a kind of vital and important thing. When you were younger, did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Absolutely not. No, I, I really didn't. I had a strange lack of any desire to um, concretize my various interests. I was constantly being accused of only widening my range of interests rather than narrowing them in any way. So by the time I had finished at university, Three years of writing had made me desperate to paint. The more I was meant to be writing, the more I wanted to sculpt and paint. And then, of course, once I was at St. Martin's, it was such a release to be suddenly able to try out, you know, that foundation year 
the most extraordinary year of education I think anyone can do. And I think it's still the same now. Because you went after you went to university. Yeah, I did it yeah. all backwards. So I, you know, most people when they do their foundation year, they're 18 years old and they're out discovering being 18. I was already, I guess, 22. So I just didn't go out. I just did all the homework. <laughs> you know, I sat there saying, wow, I've got a whole dark room to myself. I'll stay here all night. So I came out of the foundation course having come across theatre. I had done a couple of modules of it, I guess, and thought, nah, theatre design doesn't really feel uh, okay. that interesting. But people kept pointing me in the direction of this small, dark red room around the back of the theatre Royal Drury Lane which is where Miss Saigon was playing at the time. And the Motley Theatre Design course was 20 people in the old painting scene dock round the back. So you would hear the helicopter lifting off at 9.30pm every night, which was the denouement of Miss Saigon, the musical. But you had a key to a 24-hour studio. Actually, one of the main reasons I took part in that course was I couldn't make up my mind, but I knew that I would probably need 24 hours a day, whatever it was. And that, of all the courses I had looked at, um, that was the one that offered 24 axes. And when I walked in the room, I felt at home. I, I felt these were people who were telling stories and cutting up small bits of plasticine, both of which time I pathologies. But then as a child, did you go to much theatre? Did it have a reaction to you? Going to the theatre is something that during the 80s when I was a kid, because I didn't live in London, was something that um, happened with godparents who would take us to an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. We saw Cats, we saw Starlight Express um, and the pantomime because we would go to the pantomime on Christmas Eve in Hastings or Rye. And that was theatre, really. That's what I saw when I was growing up. And did anything in Rye, for example, inspire you to kind of this love of models? And I know there's a kind of big model of Rye. Did that inspire you? Yeah, I think probably that is literally pathological now in that someone said to me the other day, why do you keep going on about that bloody model? <laughs> so, so I don't want to bore people. No, but, it's incredible because um, it's basically a tiny model to scale of the whole of Rye, which is a big town. Yeah, it is. And it was made by two teachers actually a retired teacher and I think a retired electrical engineer and they found all of these old 1830s maps and they decided that 1830 was the year when this town was at its most complete so they found old engravings and they built every single building to scale and I think that the thing for me was it was next door to my house and it had my house in it and I was six and I do think from the research I've done that something happens when you're six it seems to be accepted that something the, the wires of one's mind tend to get glued together somewhat when you're six things are somewhat more freeform in the brain and then they lock and it happened to be that it's not that I just went to this thing it's that I went every Saturday so for me it was almost like a sort of liturgy or a sort of ritual and it was storytelling it was this voice but they would tell these stories and they'd say well Mr Breed the butcher walked out of his house this night and it was a candle at night and out of the corner came this attacker and you know it was storytelling yeah it was a lot of um quite gothic ghost yeah. stories and really immersive it sounds like as well entirely and it was a little light show because he was an electrical engineer so the light would ping on and because my house was in it and yeah, I could see so cool. a little light on in my house and I've noticed that when children look at our models in the studio they often make a very easy transition in their own heads from the scale they exist at to the scale that the model exists. And they, they often try and get in. I think in my head, I thought I could at once be in this building and 
be watching myself in the building. But it's funny you say that because I remember being six and going on the Millennium Dome for the first time and just being completely obsessed with knowing everything. Oh, you can see Ali Pali from that, that point and all these different points. And to think that that's actually real life and it feels like a toy town and you're just this bird who is looking down at it. I think it's so fascinating for a six-year-old because nothing ever seems small. Everything seems so big. I think that's right. And I think when you're six, probably um, you're just looking for structures by which to order things, you know, systems. And I was given this book called The Memory Palace of Matteo Ricci uh, by Jonathan D. Spence, which talks about the practice of attributing things you want to remember to uh, objects within rooms. And then when you've filled the rooms that you can remember full of objects, um, you then build new rooms. So you build these imaginary palaces and you ascribe each fact that you need to remember to an object and you place it along the corridors and in the rooms of these imagined palaces. And that's why they're called memory palaces. You know, before we had computing systems and systems of external memory storage for our brains, we used architecture as a way of um, structuring the things that we needed to store in our brains. Um, very commonly used. Um, actually, at the Globe Theatre, it was designed to help the actors remember their lines. So there are certain portraits on the walls of the Globe Theatre and the pillars are each painted a different colour so that certain speeches would be written while you're facing the direction of that portrait. So fast forward to after the Motley Theatre design course, yeah. I'm aware that you won a prize which enabled you to become a stage designer because is it quite tricky to actually go out there and put on a performance in that sense? Yeah, I was very, very privileged in that it's a thing that quite a few people train to do and end up converting into doing many other things. Um, there was a competition every two years called the Limbury Prize for Stage Design and I was lucky enough to win it and the prize was a job, which was to design the Marlowe piece, Edward II, at the Bolton Octagon Theatre. And what did you do with it? Well, we found some images. In fact, somewhere in southeast London, there was a disused swimming pool and I don't know how I found my way into it, but I went in with a camera and took a whole photo shoot of this. It was an extraordinary emotive environment and it felt really um, appropriate to stage um, the rather brutal, I mean, it's a brutal piece, Edward II. Um, so I showed that to Lawrence Till, who was the director of the work who liked it. And we recreated that space effectively, turned the Bolton Octagon into this disused, tiled swimming bath. And obviously so much of your work is about projection as well. Were you experimenting with that in the early years? Yeah, I was quite intoxicated because having not really been to the theatre that much, except for those pieces I mentioned earlier, mm. literally nearly all the pieces I refer to now in so many different genres, but particularly in theatre, I realised I watched in 1993 because that was the year I was studying Central St. Martins and then at Motley and I was in London and I just went to see everything. Uh, I think also we got free tickets. But suddenly I had people around me uh, telling me you should see this. So I got introduced to Pina Bausch and to Robert Wilson. I saw all this mind-blowing work and a lot of it was using projection um, early, early. This was early days of early 90s. Um, so I had that aspiration that I wanted to make work like that. But obviously when I began, I had nothing like the budget to do any thing very advanced but I do remember I learned to use Photoshop and I printed out um, I wanted images of Edward Meyerbridge's falling women for an aria and Don Giovanni and I just printed them out on acetate 
I got pieces of glass cut and made my own six inch oh, slide. they were kind of old school projections. Yeah, yeah. and I got, I borrowed <laughs> from the uh, English National Opera a still slide projector and put these slides in one after the other. So it was that level of, you know, sellotape and glass and string and plastic at the beginning. How fantastic. So really getting into the sort of grit of it. So I'm intrigued to speak to you about the process of mm. your works, because I think unlike so many other artworks that you might find in a typical gallery, your work is really kind of blown up to huge scale proportions. And it's so interactive and feels like something from a completely other world. Um, as an audience, you are physically transported into a different realm. I found that with so many of your artworks, whether it's theatre, whether it's the mirror maze. Can you talk me through about how you realise these ideas? Where do they begin? You know, being inside of the head of someone like Beyonce or Adele, mm. where does that idea start? Well, it starts at the beginning and at the end at the same time, um, which isn't as perverse as it sounds. So usually I will first have an interaction with the venue, the space, the room. So for example, uh, the pit Hanger piece, the memory palace the first thing I did was walk into that room the same with uh, the mirror maze I went to Copeland Park and walked into that space so you walk into a huge blank void a uh, piece of architecture and immediately have a sense of what what else could this be and then usually the next thing is you know if there's a primary text so if it's a Beyonce concert there is the lyrics and the music um, if there's no primary text like the mirror maze um, then it's really picking up the threads of an ongoing stream of spatial inquiries that I've been making sort of probably since I was about nine. Um, so Mirror Maze, for example, I did go and sit um, at Coco Chanel's studio and that's where I encountered that faceted mirror. Um, and it spiraled off in my mind a lot of um, pure geometric um, inquiries that I wanted to make so I came fresh from that visit into that space in Peckham I thought, well how can I make this small cylinder of faceted glass dance around this warehouse in Peckham um, I, I was actually sitting with a piece of paper on my lap on a boat in Greece drawing and drawing it got down to pure maths and geometry how many curves can you fit in here and of course then underlying that is a thread of identity. Um, how could I, having made portrait work for um, women at a grand scale, um, you mentioned Adele and, and Beyonce, um, largely what I'm making for them are moving portraits Yeah, in a way. They're sort of, you know, not made of lapis lazuli um, like a medieval portrait might have been, but out of LED crystals. But I guess what I'm interested in, for example, something like the Adele or Beyonce mm. tours, um, where does it begin in the sense that are you looking at the lyrics first? Mm. Is it Beyonce who comes to you and says, I want your vision? Are you looking at the words first, the kind of person's history as well? How does it work? I mean, yeah, it's a portrait, but it's also a mask mm. because it's not there instead of them. It's there with them um, and they are there through it a lot of the time because there is a fundamental point that you cannot see Beyonce or Adele from the back of the O2 stadium. They are there but you can't actually see them because they're small and you're very far away if you're, you know, at a huge stadium. So they have to be an, a magnifying glass, an amplifying device. And I guess I'm working process-wise in a number of ways. Yes, I'll already probably know the lyrics and the music before I even begin to think about this thing. The lyrics I will read like a libretto of an opera so that I have the story, I understand 
the concerns. I have these pictures in my head of the places that are mentioned or the people that are mentioned. But then there's an overriding response to when you meet an artist like that, uh, the meeting between them as a barefoot human and them and their magnified iconography because they exist at those two places. So for, for Adele, it's a very clear example, the way that she speaks. When you first hear Adele speak, it's a very separate phenomenon to how she sings. And the character that she is, I mean, she particularly um, differentiates herself between the mask of makeup that she puts on when she's performing and being Adele the performer, the garments that she wears. She doesn't dress casually for her performances. She dresses like an opera singer in encrusted evening wear and she does that very consciously because when she's not being Adele on stage she doesn't wear any of that stuff she's a, a different person so when you want to present a multifaceted portrait to the audience how do you show both of those sides how do you um, grant the audience access to that barefoot human that chuckling raucous often very bawdy yeah. joke um <laughs> Adele how do you give the audience access to both those people so you the way to do that in that case was how to set up rather monolithic geometric forms that could take this portrait um and the portrait is you know for me in her case it's the eyes so it was really a case of how bold could one be I mean in, there's one version of that show where you would have only showed the eyes all the way through and what's extraordinary is in the first moments of the show, and Adele took this very seriously, we filmed her just blinking and we recorded her breathing. We did quite a lot of takes because, you know, she took this incredibly seriously and wanted to get it right. So you hear her breathing when you enter. Um, and then there's a point where she takes this <gasps> deep breath. The music begins and you still see her eyes closed. And then just on the perfect time, her eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> she says hello. Oh my god! And and it's so simple, but yeah. it really worked. And then she did these perfectly timed blinks all throughout the song. She blinked just at the right moment because of the way she does it, you could actually read everything you needed to know about that song. I think through these enormous eyes. So powerful, yet so just sort of simplistic idea. And are you approaching the same with men as well? I'm intrigued because I feel like your sets with Kanye or The Weeknd, it's less of a mask and it's more of a kind of metaphor in a way. Yeah, I mean, I do think that generally there's less pressure on a male artist to, to, That's so interesting. to sing through the mask all the time. I think they can take more more abstraction more liberties with how they will actually translate from the face into um iconography so yes you could use an airplane or you could use um a mountain in the way that you can't so much with a female artist in general that's been my experience I may have just been working with particular men and particular women, but that's what I found for sure. But it almost feels like when I look at you know Kanye or Jay-Z on those shark boxes as well mm -hmm. they feel very vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you're not kind of blowing them up. If anything, you're turning the opposite. Why do that? I mean, I think the very nature of stepping out on a stage and being faced with 100,000 reflections of yourself, yeah. it is at once enormously aggrandizing and enormously diminishing. Um, just technically, physically, that is what is going on. You are tiny and you are this massive thing. And it's a rather simple piece of physics that but it's pretty much that's the clay that we're dealing with when we're making work in that genre 
that's also an interesting thing in the sense that leads me on to my next question about how your work is so fleeting in a way mm. so it never actually exists as a physical object and I'm really intrigued to ask you about that because I feel that I have remembered your work so much more than I remembered a painting or a sculpture or a tapestry I almost feel, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but I've almost felt that your work in itself is a bit like an exhibition. So it's a bit like a retrospective in the sense that you have the whole career, you have all the sort of different experimentations, you have the performance art, you have the lights, you have the sculptures, you have the painting and everything. And I think the reason why I've remembered it so much is because I felt so present mm. in it. And I mean, just recently, the Layman trilogy or something, that mm. scene when Bobby's doing the twist and... I've just never been so moved, but not, yes, of course, Adam Goffrey is an amazing actor, but the You set, have to give Sam Mendes yeah. a bit of credit <laughs> Sorry, there as Sam well, Mendes. please. I'll get in trouble. But, uh, <laughs> the set mm. was just mind-blowing. It's amazing. And my question is, mm. do you mind that your work doesn't exist the whole time? Well, this is it. I mean, yeah, the work, the reason why I think it impresses itself, when we come back to memory, interestingly here, um, the way that memory works, I think... Um, is, I mean, there's a wonderful book, Carla Ravelli's book, The Order of Time, um, which really highlights um, the only real relation to time we have is like a piece of music connecting the note we just heard to the one we're about to hear. Um, and the reason that theatre works, and you're, what you're talking about there is a good piece of theatre, which is oddly unusual, because a lot of it isn't. So so you, you saw a good one, you're remembering it. But... Um, it's the nature of you holding on to, you know, when you watch a piece of theatre, it somehow feels that there's an unflowing of time and, you know, we're watching this bit, then that bit. But when we make theatre, we are crafting these beats with such precision, like somebody chiseling a piece of glass and welding it next to another piece of glass in a stained glass window. We are literally, for that particular moment that you're talking about, we would have rehearsed the exact timing of the turning of that cube. Oh, no, that was three and a half seconds. Let's try it at two seconds. While we're also rehearsing the lowering of John Clark's lighting. Oh, actually, let's make it 80%. Oh, no, try 75. Actually, I think 84% would be good. Uh, while we're also getting Luke Halls' video projections. Oh, can you make the building a bit higher? No, I think that's too dark. Make it a bit lower. Not, and that's a, before you even started fucking acting, <laughs> right? So what I'm saying to you is it's real precision calibration precisely to make that particular piece of storytelling, piece of history that we're trying to enunciate there, resonate through all those other little decisions. And it's almost like a harmonic. It's like a, when you play a harmonic on a, on a musical instrument, the reason they resonate is because they chime in with what's already there. So we're only playing with what already exists. And the reason that piece resonated or that moment resonated with you in that audience is because it was hitching a ride on bits of information you already have in your brain um, and making them sing already. And that is the work. That's the work of it, really. And I try and, I guess now, having done that work for 25 years, having played with an extraordinary, you know, orchestra of breathtaking collaborators, you list the people that I've had the pleasure of being taught by and collaborating with, because they've all taught me. You know, now when I try and make a, a piece of work on my own it's like how can I bring to bear all those skills all those techniques of resonance and harmonics 
in an audience so that they do hold on. It's interesting you're saying, obviously, you've worked with some of, you know, the world's greatest collaborators. How collaborative is your work? It's entirely collaborative, um, as in working with each other. A day at work um, is sitting across a table, um, both with a pencil in hand, both with the primary text, if there is one in hand, um, and drawing and saying what if a lot. What if it's this? What if it's that? Where I feel comfortable in these conversations, where I know I'm working with a collaborator, is when it goes from what if to if then, right? Occasionally, I find myself very occasionally working with someone who isn't really a collaborator or who hasn't done it much, you know, <laughs> someone who hasn't done it before. Occasionally, you find yourself doing that. And then you realize they just the say, well, what happens then is they just say, what if, what if, what if? And you never get to the if then. Um, but the ones who know there is this gorgeous innate kind of biological clock to every project because you know the nice thing about working towards an audience coming. You know that on October the 1st, you know, there will be 300 people walking into this room to see this thing or 100,000 people, whatever it is. Um, so that's one parameter that's settled. Then, then you know that there are these lyrics or this, this text. And from there, it's a case of how free can I keep the thought? How completely open can the thought association process be? There's an awful lot of referring. There's a lot of referring to things that we have seen you know, a conversation in collaboration with a director or with a, a musician will often involve, you know, lots of internet searching and just saying, remember this thing that we saw. Yeah. Remember this image that we saw. Remember this piece of art. Remember this piece of theatre. Remember this street. You know, it's constantly weaving together our shared um, vocabulary, visual vocabulary, to kind of grow a new one out of it. And so something like the Beyonce Formation Tour, when she came out of that cube, was that alluding to anything in particular? I mean, really the thesis of that, if it has one, is, I think I've written it on one of the sketches actually, little barefoot woman, you know, emerging through angry, <laughs> fiery slot in giant, iconic LED poster. Mm. Um, it's all the tension. I mean, it's very simple in a way. Those, you know, if you are working at that level, those artists, you are... You know, your material really is the tension between being human and being a huge edifice, monument, Greek mask, figure, character. And obviously, since your career started 25 years ago or so, technology has obviously revolutionised. It's changed so much. How much has technology sort of impacted your work, the development of it impacted your work? Well, it's really interesting because at the beginning, you know, I had these aspirations towards this, you know, 90s work. A lot of it actually was coming out of Montreal. Um, there was a group called 4D Art who made the first kind of hologram. So we were emulating projection mapping work. And then 2009 was really the first year that we saw what we'd now call projection mapping. And it was, I don't know if you remember, but it was very shocking to everyone to watch a castle appear to be falling down and we all looked at these things we went oh my goodness the castle's falling down and it was a projected castle on a real castle but the dark spaces didn't read you only read the projected spaces and you genuinely believed that a castle was falling down and it messed with your rods and cones because the part of your eye that reads graphic surface and the part of your eye that reads form got confused and really that's really the piece of technology I've been most um, exploring is how to take two-dimensional graphic um, geometric imagery 
and um, interplay it with kinetic revolving usually but sometimes moving in other ways, um, sculptural forms. So you've got your show at the Pitts Hanger Museum. What is the kind of ideas behind this? How did that come about? I was invited by John Leslie, who's the curator at Pitts Hanger Manor. And just to give you a little bit about that place, Sir John Soane, who has his extraordinary house in Hoban, which so many of us visited when we were art students, houses his extraordinary collection of artefacts that he gathered as he did his great tour um, Georgian, London, extravaganza, that house. Anyway, he had a country house and it was out in the rural fields, which are now known as Ealing. Um, <laughs> End of the central line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was an absolutely beautiful place. And of course, I respond very um, strongly to it because it's a perfect cube. The house itself is a perfect cubic space. And yet it's covered with ornament because he, of course, adored flounce and ornament and decoration and it was made the the place itself was made as a um advert really for his potential architectural clients and uh, immediately I had a sense of how could you not just place a work in the space but how could you turn the space into a work itself and I had been exploring these um map works model city works I would say um the first one was in 2002 in Finland at the Finnish National Opera. I made a, a piece of work called Ditorterstadt, the dead city, and it's all set in Bruges. And as you know, Bruges, when you look down at the map, it looks like a brain. Uh, it's the most extraordinary map. It really is many human brains transformed into architecture. Um, so we had made a huge vertical map. And this came largely because you unlike in film where you can move the camera wherever you want, with a theatre audience, they are stuck in their seat. So it's incumbent upon you as a maker of stage pictures to offer them various angles. So they feel like they're moving, even though they are static. So I made a model city of Bruges and then I flipped it up. as So the audience were technically kind of on the ceiling, looking down at this map. Um, so that was the first one. Then at the National Theatre in 2015, a project called Ugly Lies the Bone. Um, in that one, I experimented with taking a huge concave space um, and I wanted to see how could that theatre succumb to curvature. <laughs> um, so we made this concave map and we made one um, at Somerset House, which stayed there for a year, which was a sort of self-portrait um, made through a model city of London. And actually what I've begun doing now is um, working in uh, model city portraits. So I could do one of you, Katie, and here's how it would work. Well, you and I would sit like this for 90 minutes and you would have already given me a list of everywhere you'd ever lived. And we'd use that as the backbone of the interview. And I would interview you and I would ask you about specific things that had influenced you, whether it's a book or a film or a moment or a day or a person. And we'd have a conversation. It might be quite you know, formal based on this <laughs> backbone of uh, places where you'd lived. But from that, I would derive a map. And it might not be specific of places you've been or lived, or it might relate to where the person wrote the book that influenced you most or where the person was born who you spoke of with most emotion or what doorstop or whatever it was and then make you a map of that and that would be your portrait in geography 
And then you have that on your wall. So when someone comes and sees that work and they say to you, well, Katie, why is there uh, Tottenham Court Road on there? Or why is the Louvre there? Or why is that beach in Devon there? Then you would tell them your stories. And it becomes this kind of prop device. Anyway, the thing at um, Pitsanger is the most ambitious of those. This one um, is me saying, I wonder if I could make a map of all the places where I consider significant shifts in human perception to have taken place. I wonder if I can map those and invite people to stand within them as a sort of chapel or meditation, consolation, to remind us how often we have as a species, in my opinion, been able to actually change our minds and being able to shift our perspective. What I've done is place, um, imagine a quarter of a rugby ball entirely incised with model scars of model city and model landscape placed at the intersection of a vertical and horizontal mirror that covers the entire ceiling and wall of the building. And then when you stand inside it, you are within a giant egg form which is entirely covered in scarred traces of human uh, endeavour. I think it's such a beautiful thing. <laughs> Gosh, it's quite emotional already. And so I'm really intrigued in, in terms of like, how do you get to that stage? So obviously you have this blown up model. You know, it's not a kind of handmade model. There's so many different processes that went before that. What do you start with when you're, when you're kind of designing these large scale projects? So in this case, once I'd walked in the room, once I'd realised I wanted to make a piece in this form, um, that found a congruence with my sense, I think, that we all feel of hopelessness in the face of the huge perspective shift that our species needs to go through in order to survive. I think there's probably very few people now who at some point in each day don't have a little remembrance of the existential calamity that we find ourselves in as a species. So my concern was how to offer any kind of consolation in the face of the need that we have as a culture to make big changes in our mind. I'm addressing the perspective shift that we need to enter into. Um, and I'm looking at ways that from my own little batch of practices and poems, how can I offer any environment that might help at least me and I hope others to see a whole picture because the one thing this map does it starts the first place on the map is 73,000 years BC in a cave in South Africa where the first marks were made by the first homo sapiens when they first left an intentional mark on the wall and it then goes through many different places very subjectively and personally chosen so for example there is the room in Poland where Copernicus first drew the map which showed the sun at the centre rather than the earth. Then it's, okay, well, how on earth does this communicate? How does this resonate? How is it actually going to communicate? So it's sketching. Um, there is a huge messy sketch downstairs of me going, okay, well, you know, the 19th century will be over here. This will be over there. There'll be this cave there and then there'll be this castle here and then there'll be somebody's house there. 
then it's a huge piece of research and a piece of work like this, an awful lot of reading, a lot of, a lot of gathering of dates and times and places. And my whole studio works with me on that. It's certainly not me alone. Um, so obviously next year you're representing the UK at the Dubai Expo 2020. That obviously is part of your whole sort of AI collective poetry, which is obviously a kind of huge advance in technology. What was the kind of ideas behind that? So Yana and Hans Ulrich asked me to come to the Serpentine Gallery to talk about doing something for their gala event. My first um, real encounter with the Serpentine had been Felix Gonzalez Torres's work there. Um, and so I wanted somehow to access that. I was like, well, what if these 1,500 people that are all arriving at the Serpentine and supporting, they're donating money fundamentally to make the Serpentine free for people the rest of the year. What if they could all be given something in the way that that Gonzalez Torres work was all about being able to take, take a piece of these suites, just take a piece of the art. Um, but what if they could also all participate in it? So I said, why don't we um, see if we can make a collective poem? Uh, why don't we ask all of these 1500 people to each donate a word and let's make a collective poem and then let's somehow express that in material form and give it, give each person a fragment of it. So mercifully, they knew somebody at Google Arts and Culture who already had been developing um, a poetry generator. So we advanced that. And that has now, over the past three or four years, um, developed. The piece that you mentioned at the Victoria and Albert Museum was a collective carol that everyone could contribute one word to. And it, we added a new element to that because it could sing at you. Um, and then the piece in Trafalgar Square... Um, which was my sort of uh, response to Brexit in a way, was um, to respond to Trafalgar Square and say, well, if you think of all the voices that have been heard in this square in um, protests and in celebration and in conflict and in communion, um, if these lions could speak, if one of these lions could open its mouth after 150 years of sitting here, what might it say? So everybody was invited to feed one word to the lion and we use that same algorithm. So when somebody said to me, why don't you enter a competition to design the pavilion for the UK at the World Expo? It came quite quickly to me. This is what I mean about sort of an ongoing train of uh, inquiries. Like, well, what if there's apparently there's going to be 25 million people visiting this thing? What if they all contributed a word and we designed this sculptural expression of the poetry generator and on the facade of this building uh, is a constant stream of collective poetry uh, generated from the words of everybody who passes through it that's what we're making do you think that as you get older and you mature into your career much more and you become sort of world-renowned for making stages in a way do, do you enjoy making your own work more and is that something that you've always wanted to do I think probably uh, I've felt always that I've been making my own work in that I've trodden a path that finds elisions of lines of inquiry between me and the artists that I've been collaborating with. And because my practice remains collaborative, even on the work that I call my own, it's still a massive collaboration with the people who build it and those who work with me in the studio. I think really the maturation, I guess, that's happening is that I, I feel that I'm beginning to develop the strands towards a thesis. So having made a lot of work that you might call portraiture, working with artists whose thesis is their lyrics and their music, 
Um, I think now these compositions that I'm making are portraiture beyond that or they're responses to um, the beginnings of a rather perhaps belated shaping of a, an offering of consolation, I guess. I, I think my thing when I was a student studying art was I was a little bit rigorous on myself of not wanting to make things unless they served a purpose. Um, so working in collaboration with primary texts was a really great way to build the muscle and to learn the techniques, the repetitive drawing of a line, you know, or making of a t revolving cube. You make it that many times, you learn its ways. And actually just the kind of uh, process of making and then remaking has led to me, I think, now uh, developing uh, the stories that I want to tell myself within these uh, media. And do you feel, again, sort of going back to that question about feeling, what is the different feeling about seeing your own work as opposed to maybe someone else's who you've collaborated mm. with? I mean, again, if I'm standing in a crowd of 100,000 people and this object, this huge glowing red cube is turning and I saw it turn in my mind and now it's turning with all of us watching that does feel like my work. Yeah. It does feel like something I wanted to bring out to the world and I have. Um, however, the performative aspect then takes over. So it's almost like there are, it sort of ebbs and flows between here's the thing I wanted to happen. And then, you know, obviously uh, one is drawn into the whole worlds of the performance. And I guess when there isn't a performer, I think the onus is much more on what really is the dialogue with the, with the viewer of just this object on its own? Is there enough? The question I'm always asking myself is, is there enough nourishment? You know, is there enough? You know, if it doesn't perform, is it worthy? These are the questions I have to answer. And just to round those up, so in the Great Human Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, if you could choose a female artist, set designer, filmmaker, anything, now from history, um, who would your kind of most influential female artist be and what would you say to them? Oh my goodness. I would like to dig deeper into history but if I have to choose one from immediately, the one that just came into my mind is still alive and she's called Jane Campion, um, a filmmaker. I do think that the time that she made a film called Sweetie, I was living in Australia at the time, um, and a very short film that preceded that. Um, I'm just going to describe it to you. It's um, a woman goes to the plug and pulls at a hair sticking out of the plug. And she pulls so hard that an entire beast comes out made of hair and then she cuts the hair away and discovers a gorgeous male human and she of course decides to kiss him and while she's kissing him she just fiddles around a little bit on his shoulder and finds a tiny little hair and pulls at it oh my goodness and he evaporates so that that's a, <laughs> that's a piece of work that i remember seeing in australia at that time and mm. it was massively influential as was of course the piano Thank you so much, Ez, for coming and being a guest on my podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to the second episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the incredible Ez Devlin. I am completely taken aback at Ez's fantastic career and urge you all to experience her current memory palace at the Pittshanger Manor. It's absolutely remarkable. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Ellie Clifford. Thank you so much to Naomi Abel Hirsch and of course my composer Ben Weatherfield. Please do not forget to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.
If you're still looking for that perfect piece to make your house a home, then look no further than the Affordable Art Fair. This year's edition, their 20th anniversary, is taking place between the 17th and the 20th of October in Battersea Park, and prices start from just £50. For more details and to book tickets, visit affordableartfair.com and for half-price tickets, use the code GREAT at checkout. Valid Thursday through Sunday. Thanks for listening.